Today, I welcome Darren Coxon, Chief Operating Officer at Bushes Education. In this episode, we talk about AI in education, the risk of AI ethics and staff training, the need for personalized learning, and decentralized education in future school thinking. Well, maybe the time is now because we're going to deep dive into AI. And, uh, you know, we talk about AI in all its guises. And, you know, Darren, you've spent almost 20 years working in education, leading schools, growing schools, supporting schools, driving technology, driving change. What have been the biggest changes shifts you've noticed? And, you know, have they all happened in the last few years or have you seen it as an easy growth? Well, actually, this year, it's my 25th year. So I actually first stepped foot into the classroom in 1998. Literally just feels like five minutes ago. It's funny you asked that question because I was actually just reflecting on this. Very recently, I actually stepped back into the classroom to teach um, a bunch of kids at the beginning of this last term, mainly because the school I'm working at in Tunis, the teacher uh, left at quite short notice. And so I just said, look, I'll step in and do some class teaching. And what I noticed actually is I hadn't changed much at all. So in so many ways, the world of the classroom as a class teacher is, there's not much difference. In fact, there's no difference at all. So bizarrely, my first response to that question is not much, not much has changed. But I think the main differences, the main kind of, in terms of the structure of the lesson and standing at the front and blah, 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 that is exactly the same. It's been the same for 200 years, quite frankly. It's the same as when I was a student, a pupil at school. But I think the main difference that I've noticed, and I think there are a few reasons for this. I think it's coming out of COVID. It's coming out of digital device use. There are a number of reasons. I think the main difference is the fact that kids and our, not just the kids, but our attention spans have reduced significantly. And I think this is a big deal because what I noticed, if I set a group off on a task, they would literally two minutes later, they would want to do something different. Maybe I've just become a bit old and boring as a teacher. That's very possible. The more you think you're good at stuff and the less maybe you are. But I do think there's definitely a, a shift and that kids, their attention wanders. And I do think it's partly thing with COVID. I think the kids, they were immersed in digital worlds way more, probably babysat using digital devices for what was probably two years. Let's face it, it was around about two years. But I think just more broadly, the TikTok and the Instagram and the Roblox and Minecraft and Fortnite and Call of Duty, whatever it is, you know, esports, this rapid fire nature of digital delivery and dissemination of digital content. I think kids' brains are just wired. So even though it looks and feels broadly similar to how it was when I first stepped into a classroom 25 years ago, definitely in terms of everybody's, mine included, everybody's attention spans have just reduced significantly. And I do think that's the biggest problem that we have right now. Yeah, I agree. And I sort of talk about taking control. And I think the problem with technology is it's completely disrupted our lives. And, you know, not just disrupted because we have access to it. Access is something completely different to how it's being set up. You know, we're continually disrupted through notifications because big tech wants to get us to do something. And we're all, we all just put this black mirror in our pockets and we're kind of allowed to access anything, which is incredibly powerful. But we just don't take control. And we're the worst role models as adults and parents. You know, you talk about attention spans. I think we're all like this because a notification will come up. We think it's important because we haven't actually disciplined ourselves to go, turn it off. You know, it's here as a tool for when I need to go in and use it. And I see that with my kids. And I, when I speak to other school leaders, the attention span is a real big issue. And then that in itself brings 
the mental health issues and social issues that I think we're waiting for a big disaster down the road. You are, you're right. I mean, I think that if you think about the notion of flow, I can't say that guy's name, the psychologist who first kind of really started exploring the nature of flow. There's a certain kind of period of time before you enter the flow state. You can only really be properly creative and insightful and have the real insights when you get into this state of flow. And actually, this constant stream of interruptions makes it pretty well impossible. So when I'm working, like, you know, if I'm writing or whatever I'm doing, I literally have to physically turn my phone on to like sleep mode. So I don't get no, like I've done for this interview. I mean, I literally just shut everything down so I can get no notifications whatsoever. If I don't do that, I will just see that my phone flash up on like LinkedIn or WhatsApp or whatever. And I can't stop myself. And it doesn't matter how banal it is. It doesn't matter how meaningless the communication is. I have to check. I pulled out of my flow state and it will take me several minutes to get back in. And I sometimes will find one or two hours go past and I just think I've got nothing done. And so sometimes I have to physically put my phone into a different room and turn off notifications on my laptop. Otherwise, I just get nothing done. So you're absolutely right. It kills this ability to get properly involved in a way the human mind needs to get involved in these things to be creative. I love that language, actually, flow states. I've actually had to, in my own organization, just put much more discipline. I've literally turned everybody to turn off email notification, turn off Skype notification, turn off every notification. I said, I could waste an entire day just doing nothing apart from responding to things that come in that are unplanned. I call it task mode. And actually, so I'm trying to get everyone back off and weaned off, you know, even in my organization, because we're not as productive as we used to be, because everyone's disrupted calling for time and no one's disciplined to go, do you know what? I'm switching it off. I'm in task mode. I'm going to get my task done. And then I'm going to come out of task mode. I'm going to see what notifications and things have come in. That in itself becomes a task piece. We're not designing it and no one spends their time doing it because it's all now, now, now. I mean, you're talking about kind of all of these different streams that disrupt us. It's also the amount of content. Right now, how many streaming channels are there? How much content is there? I mean, we waste time. My wife and I just trying to find something to watch because we're like, there must be something. And you spend ages doing it because there's so much choice, but actually little choice. It's almost like a paradox to choice because there's an abundance of what we perceive to be content that could be useful. How do I find it? And maybe that's where AI needs to come in. Definitely. Well, it already does with the nature of the algorithm, like Netflix algorithms. But of course, that narrows your choice into areas that maybe stops you experiencing the Three Colors trilogy that I've just mentioned, the Kozlowski trilogy, beautiful film, Polish director, really incredible three films. Would they be recommended to me by a Netflix algorithm? Probably not. I mean, the only reason I know them is because, you know, I, I watched one on a DVD. I think I went to the movies, actually, and watched one at the movies and thought, wow, this is incredible. So I got all three as a box set, DVD box set. But now I just think, actually, I wouldn't have come across them. Having said that, I know this is slight digression from education, but actually it isn't because it all ties together in terms of the notion of kind of moving through a program of work and how things are kind of pushed to you at certain times. The reason I love that Bring Me the Horizon song and that Grimes song is because I was listening to Grimes and then Spotify recommended is the first kind of song on the list, this collaboration she did with this rock band. I never heard of them before. So in some ways it narrows us, but actually some ways it can also open it up because if the algorithm could potentially recommend something to us, and it's the same with learning, if we're engaged in a learning process, the algorithm could present maybe a new learning video, a new, a new something which is kind of related to what we've been watching. We'll talk about this later. I think there are certain AI applications which do have that ability to kind of 
help you kind of meander through some maybe some interesting side streets when you're learning stuff. But I think there is that possibility with AI that it could potentially open up in some ways narrow us with sort of like Netflix recommended lists, but potentially also offer us some new things that we maybe we hadn't really thought about listening to or, or watching. You recently wrote an article titled Seven Reasons Why Schools Are Not Ready for AI. What led to your interest in considering the possible impact of AI in education? It's probably about a year ago that I started playing around with these text-to-image AIs, like mid-journey. I think it was about a year ago, maybe slightly less. And I just stumbled on it. I don't even know how. I just maybe added saw a YouTube video or a TikTok video or something kind of recommended like, to me, you know, I'll, I'll explore that. And I just thought, wow, hang on, there's something in this. There's something here. And this was before ChatGPT was released. So I was kind of already exploring it, you know, August, September, October time last year. And then ChatGPT was released in late November, early December, late November of last year. I really vividly remember just opening it up and kind of writing. And I think literally the first thing I wrote was write me an essay on the role of the witches in Macbeth. I'm pretty certain that was literally the very, very first, I'll probably go back through my history and work out what the first thing was that I, I wrote into it. And it wrote out this essay and I thought, oh, hang on a minute. This is actually really good. You know, this is not just kind of some robot text. This is kind of quite nuanced and quite intelligent. And it brought in quotes and it brought in scene and acts. And, and it was kind of like, I mean, now I look back and I think, because I know the chat GPT style, I think it is actually quite robotic and quite generic. But at the time I thought, hang on, all of a sudden in December and January, there was all this talk, New York State banned chat GPT. And I think there was this Austin, Texas also. There were two or three states in the US that just banned it, which is complete nonsense because kids just use their phone. They've now rolled back and they are now allowing this to be used. So I think it was a combination of me starting to use it myself and my own kind of playing around with it, not introducing it into school at that point, just literally playing around with it and saying, hang on, this is really saving me time here. This is not just all kind of hype and hoo-ha and like, you know, rah, rah, rah. And all of a sudden I try and use it and think, nah, it's okay. It was like genuinely saving me time. So that plus just noise, well, not even noise, but just discussion and argument and debate in the education community, mainly through LinkedIn, which is for me is in all of these professions are interfacing at the moment, discussing, exploring and publishing and debating and arguing. Just that combination got me thinking, there is something quite significant that's about to happen. And I think there is something really significant and massive that's about to happen. You know, in the next kind of couple of years, I think we're going to see an enormous shift. So I think it was just that combination of personal use and lots of people going, I've just tried this and it's really amazing. And I try it and think, wow. And then I find something that's quite cool and I publish it and people are like, wow. And so I think there's just this collective energy, which has just been developing over the last kind of seven or eight months. I mean, it's a fascinating area. I mean, I'm like you, not addicted to talk technology and change, but just fascinated. I always have been. And to me, it's like, wow, let me go and explore what this can do. But with all these things, as you say, we have a big foot in education. And part of that is always looking at, and I've talked about the future of education. You and I have talked about the future of schools and things. This became a real game change to the human side. And so, you know, we talk about, you know, us adults being pretty resistant to change. And you also talk about teachers being resistant to change. Do you think that they are, as a group, are they harder to drive change through in any other profession? It's a really good question. I think... Yes and no. I think that on an individual level, I think most teachers would be delighted to be given the opportunity and the skill set to do things differently. 
There are very few teachers that I would say who are enjoying being in a classroom with 30 unruly kids that they can't discipline and they can no longer teach and that they can't get to focus for more than five minutes. And they just feel like they're teaching them a subject which is kind of becoming increasingly irrelevant in a style of pedagogy, which is increasingly irrelevant. I've seen some comments on, on again, on LinkedIn and, other, and, and Twitter and other social media platforms where you might get a teacher who's teaching a very traditional school with super well-behaved kids. And, you know, like, I don't know, one of the kind of top schools in the UK where all the kids are just like impeccable, a beautiful uniform, and they all sit in rows and they say, sir and mom. And I think those teachers are quite happy with the way things are because actually the kids aren't misbehaving. But honestly, if you look at the majority of schools across the world and the majority of school students across the world, I would think probably 95% are like, what are we doing? You know, I'm sitting in a classroom and I'm, and I'm learning stuff which just isn't relevant and I'm bored and I'm switched off and I'm being tested to death for what reason? And I think teachers are also in that loop. You know, why are we here and why are we doing this? So I think that for most teachers, I think they would be delighted to be able to change on an individual level. I think the problem that we have is that the system itself doesn't allow teachers to change. You know, we've got an exam system which really pushes teachers towards teaching in a very particular way. It's like form following function, you know, the architectural sort of phrase or saying where basically whatever the end product is, you've got to fit the thing around whatever the end product is. It's like we have a classroom of a 40 to 50 square meter classroom because we need to teach kids facing the front so they can pass exams. So everything is dictated by an exam system, which is obviously then dictated by a university system because they want a number of points or a number of grades, a number of UCAS points, which relates to, you know, if you have 45 IB points, you're super clever. And if you've got 20 IB points, then you're not or you've got straight A grades, even though the actual way in which we assess is very narrow, you know, it's only assessing a very narrow set of skills and criteria, and you either fit into that or you don't. And so I think the system itself stops individuals from innovating within that system, because you could be in a primary school and teach project-based learning, and lots of schools do. And if you look at the international primary curriculum, if you look at the IB's primary curriculum, all of these they're quite heavily project-based learning. As soon as you get into the IB and the IB middle years program is very similar. So you've kind of got the first two thirds of the IB program. You hit the diploma program and it's exam, exam, exam. You know, it's very different from the, the IB middle years program and the IB diploma program, totally different. And the reason is because the end product is the university system. So I think that teachers, I've experienced this myself as a teacher. I've tried to teach project-based learning. And then the closer you get to exams, the kids are like, just teach us the stuff I need to pass my exam. While we're caught in that system, teachers are going to be very resistant to changing and schools are going to be very resistant to changing because they're then terrified that the kids are just not going to learn the stuff they need in order to pass the exam. Even though the irony is some of the new project-based curricula that are coming out, completely false. If you look at the fossil curriculum, if you look at the work that Think Learning Studio are doing at the moment, actually, most of the evidence shows that if you do properly engage in a project-based learning curriculum, the results go through the roof. So actually, that's not true. But I think there's a general resistance to trying these new things because schools are like terrified that maybe the kids are going to lose out. So there's that. There's the inspection system. So the inspection system, very much Ofsted as an example, but also ISI, BSO internationally, the inspection system privileges results. It privileges kind of value add, and it has to be very quantified. The last inspection, it was what actually prompted me to go and work in the independent and the international sectors. About 15 years ago, I remember we were Ofsted inspector, the school I was deputy head at in Cambridge. It was an Ofsted outstanding school, had been for more than 10 years. 
the head had a CBE for education. He was super, super, you know, he was right at the top of his field. And I remember the Ofsted inspector said to him, your results this year are worse than last year. The best you're going to get from us is be a good. We are going to downgrade you from outstanding to good. The guy had a nervous breakdown. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. It was really um, not quite a nervous breakdown, but he was on the edge. And so I think the inspection system, which basically says, you know, if your kids are getting a certain grade, therefore we're going to give you a certain level. The system is wrong. I mean, the system isn't designed to change. And obviously we have teachers in there who it's vocation as opposed to, I'm not here to kind of facilitate the learning of the latest tech. I'm being taught in a way or being trained in a way to do that. But what are the potential benefits of integrating AI into education? I think, look, if you kind of go on a continuum from kind of right at the start all the way through, the first thing is that it saves time, just saves time. I mean, this school I'm working at here, that I'm working at the British International School of Tunis at the moment in their kind of fairly directly day-to-day supporting the school. The easiest sell into schools, just show a teacher how it can plan a scheme of work, how quickly it can plan lessons and how quickly it can create differentiated resources and presentations and you're not really changing the world. It's not like you're actually changing what you're doing in the classroom, but what you're doing is you're saving teachers time. And I've noticed the teachers like, this is genuinely saving me time here. This is not just lip service. This stuff is working. And this, and it's great to give teachers new ideas as well. I mean, I just, I just say, look, if you're not sure how to start a lesson, just put into chat GPT, give me 10 interesting lesson starters for the water cycle or the witches in Macbeth or whatever. It doesn't really matter. And actually it will spit out 10 things and eight of them might be or nine of them might be, you know, one might be an actually killer idea, like a really great hook. It's really starting to get very, very good if you prime it correctly to assess work. So it's really, really good at, because it's rules-based, it's like, well, this is the criteria for the assessment. This is the student's work and match them together. And what is the student doing well? And what could the student improving? Because of the nature of the natural language processing of the model, it's quite conversational. And so the way in which you can feed back to students in quite a conversational, almost friendly way, you did this really well, but these five things work on for your next essay. It's kind of, it works. That's why it's called chat GPT because it chats with you. And so I think as a tool to support assessment and support learning and support progress, really, really good. But moving forward, the single biggest impact, well, there are two big impacts actually. The single biggest impact it will have for the teaching and learning process is that students very soon will have a really individualized, really bespoke learning mentor that knows their learning style, that knows their weaknesses, that knows when in the day they can learn best, that will know how they're feeling and will be able to adapt the learning and the instruction to suit. That will happen. I mean, Khan Miga are already sort of beginning to look at that. But that, I think Salkar would say himself that it's still very early days. You know, it's still quite basic what they're doing. But I think in time, AI will absolutely sit at the center of the student's learning experience. And they will literally look to this AI as, as like a mentor, as a guide, as a support, like a learning buddy, a learning genie, whatever you want to call it. That AI mentor will be with this student all the time. Whenever they need them, they can call them up and say, oh, hi, I'm really struggling with this. Can you help? And it will talk them through the problem. So for the first time ever, this is why I think us in education is so excited. For the first time ever, we're actually going to have proper differentiation, proper inclusion doesn't matter what your ability level is, you're going to have an AI which can really support you. The second thing I think which is going to be super, super important, everyone's kind of looking in that direction at the moment, in the kind of the individualized support and the instruction and the handholding. In the other direction, though, which is where I'm also looking right now, is in AI's ability to organize data, in AI's ability to kind of structure messy, 
school data into a system which is easy to work with, to input data, to ask it questions. You know, I dropped in a load of survey data into ChatGPT. We did a student and a staff and a parent survey. We dumped, literally copy-pasted, and I asked it to analyze and sort it, and it did an amazing job, amazing job. Within two minutes, it had read it all. These are the top 10 things that all three surveys are telling you about the school, the, the top 10 things that you need to improve about the school based on all three lots of survey data quantitative and qualitative, it took two minutes. So those are the two areas that I think I'm most excited about because we're really, really bad at managing data in schools. We're absolutely rubbish at it. And there is no system, there's no MIS that does it particularly well either, in my opinion. They all do an okay job, but none of them are very good. And then, so there's that organization, but also this sort of bespoke support for students. Let's look at the other side of it. And what problems will AI pose to education? On the one hand, there's a fear that it just makes us all stupid and lazy. As I said right at the beginning, the, literally the first thing I wrote into ChatGPT is write me an essay about the role of witches in Macbeth. So I think there are a lot of educators that are basically saying, well, yeah, okay, but what about a student's ability to analyze and, and to write and to think and process and to absorb knowledge and to be able to kind of spit the knowledge out in a way that shows they understand that knowledge? And what's it going to do to students' abilities to collaborate and to communicate if they're locked in this AI world where they're not speaking to anybody else? And what's it going to do to the nature of bias? And it's probably founded. I think there is probably some basis in the concern. None of us know exactly where it's going to head. But at the moment, ChatGPT is trained on human data. So it's trained on the data up to September 2021. And Google Bard's roughly the same. Although the difference with Google Bard, it's also trained on Google search data. That's the main difference between the two systems. Obviously, ChatGPT isn't. And so you've got these systems which are trained on human data, but what's of course going to happen in the next kind of three to five years is that these AI systems will be trained on their own data so that it'll become a bit of a loop. So the potential for these AI systems to exacerbate bias and misrepresentation and narrow-minded thinking. And as educators, obviously we need to teach kids how to use these tools, absolutely. And we need to understand how to adapt our practice as educators, but we also need to be making the students and ourselves very aware. There are dangers if kids are locked into these AI worlds where they're not interfacing with other human beings and they're only ever, you know, they get completely absorbed with, it's a bit like the film Her, the Joachim Phoenix film Her, where he's just locked in and he basically falls in love with his AI companion. I think there's that slight danger where kids maybe become to rely on these machines too much. I mean, I'm very worried, for example, about the fact that Snapchat has my AI and I've tried using it and I can see straight through it. But there could be some kids who have no friends at school and who start to kind of interface with these AIs. And maybe these AIs start to tell them things that are worrying, you know, you know, the worst case scenario, the AI tells them to do something which is really damaging and harmful to themselves. Now, I'm not saying Snapchat will do that at all because I think there's enough guardrails but there are enough open source models out there that don't have those guardrails. And what if a child starts to interface? What if they build their own AI model? They get locked into this world where their own psychoses or their own fears or their own anxieties are just compounding and compounding. So that's a debate that we really do have to be having in education, because if we don't, we might find that there are some children who have their own fears and worries just compounded beyond the ability for us to be able to actually help them. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch.
I look at how edtech's been brought into into education the last sort of 15 years and we put it into schools with and as I said we hope it's going to solve problems teachers aren't really trained on the platforms they never use enough of the features it's like iPads and devices when they put them in they became a new shiny marketing tool to go hey hey we're ahead of the look at us we got an iPad but teachers aren't really trained on how to effectively use it all the time and my worry is that the teachers to be able to use AI effectively, we're way off the skill set and also the aptitude for them to be able to go, actually, A, I'm interested. B, I've got the time. How do I make sure I'm using this effectively? Because, you know, you talked about the systems and us changing. We seem we can't even do it with a device that has apps on it. And by the way, I can do some things because humans are lazy. I just don't know how we're going to be able to get AI into education with the teachers. Possibly. Again, I hadn't really thought about this before, but the time aspect, I think you're absolutely right. That's probably the critical one. Teachers simply do not have the time because, you know, I mean, I remember when I was teaching full time. I mean, it is such an exhausting job. And particularly now, if you're battling student behavior like day in, day out, you get home. The last thing you want to do is start learning new stuff. You want to just switch on your Netflix and have whatever the algorithm kind of washing over you. And then weekends come and you just and then a week and a term and a year goes by and you've not learned a thing. So I think we're absolutely right. But possibly if we can, first of all, give teachers time by showing them how they can plan out their work and their schemes of work and their lesson plans using AI, actually it could become a, a virtuous circle rather than a vicious circle in that they have enough time. And then you use that time formally to learn about how they can then employ these techniques into the classroom. And the reason I say this is, this is likely to be able to happen is it's happening right now because this week, it's really interesting that we're having this conversation this week. This week in the school here, we've got AI week. So we've got AI week, not very original, but you know, it's a week about AI. It's the Ron Seal approach to marketing. I love it. Yeah, exactly right. That's what it says on the tin. The exams finished two weeks ago. Kids go off on holiday next week, middle of next week, because it's Eid next week here in, across the sort of the Islamic world. So most schools are either breaking completely or they've got a break. We're breaking completely for the summer at the end of next week. And so we've collapsed the curriculum for this week. And so we're doing project-based learning, passion projects, debating around AI sort of ethics, some of the stuff that we've been talking about now. We've got visiting speakers coming in and they're learning basically how to use chat, GBT, perplexity, Gamma, Midjourney, Stable Diffusion, lots of different tools. But it's really interesting because the teachers over the last probably month definitely have had more time. Not all of them. I think some of them will say, well, no, I've not had any time at all. But I think some of them have had enough time to actually be able to devote some time to actually planning this. And as a result, what I'm hearing, I'm literally, it's quite interesting just this morning, just getting emails coming through. We tried this and it worked really well. And we had an amazing debate yesterday. I've never seen so much energy. And I was in the school yesterday and it was just this buzz yesterday afternoon of all this stuff going on and they're playing with Lego robotics and they're doing coding with Python and they're looking at Unity, which for me is like the big language that all schools have to teach Unity. Python and Unity should be on every school curriculum in the same way that numeracy and literacy on the school curriculum. Those two should be compulsory across the world. That's the language of the future, those two programming languages. But it's about focus. I mean, we're all excited, right? There's no question. And it's great you can have AI week and, you know, everyone has where you get to experiment and do it. But again, it's everyone has a broad skill set. And how do I make sure that I'm intentional and focused and disciplined? I use it a lot, I say, in my business because uh, I'm seeing it. I'm trying to do it with my children as well. 
is the discipline of control and also what is useful and what is not, because we can all go off and we want to try, try some fun things. And what do I look like as a frog? And then I can erase some of my brothers in the family photos. And that's obviously brilliant. And you can be lost in lots of things and you need to have a fixed kind of toolkit to go, do you know what, to be really good, this is what you should do. And, you know, are you creating anything? Because, I mean, if there isn't anything, just it's almost like levels. Like this is a starter kit. Focus on doing this really well. Almost get the badge, pass this, and then you get permission to kind of almost go and explore these next levels. Almost like we talk about a game, but otherwise it's easy to get distracted. You're absolutely right. I think um, there are so many applications now. It's like the App Store was when the iPhone was first came out, like 2007, 2008. The iPhone was released, and then within about a year, the SDK opened, uh, the software development kit opened, and it just went ballistic, but 99% of it was garbage. I mean, absolute rubbish. We downloaded these apps and we played with them for like five minutes and we thought, well, this is rubbish. I think the same thing's happened with AI. So if you look at 90% of the stuff that's out there is built onto GPT 3.5. So the foundation of ChatGPT, because you've got ChatGPT, which sits on the top, but actually the foundation is OpenAI's GPT 3.5 model with the API. And so you've basically got all of these essay writing and blog post writing and correction and this and that, blah, blah, blah. And they're all basically built on 3.5, which you can get for free. And so 95% of the stuff that's out there right now, you just, we ignore. And I've said this to the teachers, play with it if you want to, but don't bake it into your workflows because next year probably won't even exist. They'll have come up with a solution to a problem that wasn't even there. What I've said is you need to just focus on three or four, just focus on three or four, focus on chat GPT for yourself. Don't focus on it for your students because they need to log in with a phone number and it's really, really hard to do that. So don't say to all of your kids, you need to be using ChatGPT. They can use it at home, but in the lesson, it's actually problematic to use ChatGPT at the moment. I think it's going to change because they're going to come up with some sort of group commercial licenses, I think, for ChatGPT. I think it won't be long before you can have an education version that you sign up to. I think that will come maybe for September. I'm not sure, but I'm thinking probably that's the way their thoughts are going. Because the institutional adoption of ChatGPT is impossible. It's, you sign up as an individual, not as a group. So I think ChatGPT for planning, for assessment, for idea generation, for whatever, use ChatGPT. In the classroom, perplexity for me is the best tool right now. because It's got GPT-4 baked into it. And it's just a really nice, clean, simple, well-controlled interface that enables you to kind of move off into different directions, like I was saying at the beginning. Put in a prompt and it gives you the response. And then it will say, consider this, 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 and this. It pushes you down different avenues and you can explore different things. So it kind of maybe works in the way a teacher would work. Maybe consider this, or how about looking at that? Or I found this website that you might want to look at. So it's a really nice, and the kids love it. The primary school kids call it Plexi, which is quite sweet. So they even have a name for it. And they all use it and they all really, really like it. So I think Gamma, it can be okay. Bing Chat, I think is quite useful for like quick searching on the internet. I think Gamma's a fantastic. I use Gamma every day for presentations. Gamma's like amazing. I think the guys at Gamma are doing a brilliant, brilliant job. I'm actually working with the development team at the moment, helping them just to develop one or two sort of features that will be useful for education, but it's free. They give you loads of free AI tokens so you can have a proper play with it and, and, and really get stuck in. And honestly, that's about it. A mid-journey, I use mid-journey, or stable diffusion if, if you want an online version of text-to-image. I would say 90% of what my teachers and students are doing now is based on probably four applications. I just don't think you need any more than that. 
we're coming to the end of this podcast, but I think we we'll need to uh, certainly organize a part two because, you know, I'd like to explore bias more. I'd like to explore sort of believability or trust or fake news because deep fakes of now, you know, AI has won lots of competition, done mashups for pop artists. We've got Hollywood actors who have their own deep fake TikTok channels. They are believable. And, you know, we think about what happened to elections and data and, and news four or five years ago it's going to get worse. And, you know, that in itself is something we need to talk about. So I wanted to wrap up by asking you, and you're actually a very good person. I'm expecting a very different answer than I've had from a lot of heads and for people in education. If you were to look into your crystal ball at what the future of education would be like in 2050, what do you think is going to be the same or what's going to be different? Well, I think I'm going to follow directly on from what you've just said, because actually that sets up exactly the way I think education is going to move in the next sort of 20 to 30 years. I think what we're seeing, so I'm going to logically extend the last thing that you've said, and then I'll move on to what I want to kind of finish with. I think what we're seeing now in, in the world is that we are increasingly unable to trust the world that's mediated to us through digital technology. You know, so we are seeing, you know, Photoshop manipulation, which we've seen for the last few years. We've got like filters on TikTok videos, which like bold glamour, which make people look really like artificially beautiful version of themselves. We've got voice cloning, you know, through these kind of voice cloning AIs and we've got deep fakes. And so basically, I think what's going to happen and what's now starting to happen, and I know personally this is happening to me, I'm trusting the world less and less that comes at me through any form of digital I think there will be the notion of digital provenance or sorry, human provenance in that we'll start to see watermarks to say, you know, this was created by a human, not by an AI. But I think at the moment, we don't have that. So it's kind of the Wild West. I think what will happen as a result, and what I'm actually hoping will happen as a result, is we start turning ourselves more inwards. And I don't mean in an insular way. I just mean we start looking at the people around us. And what I'm hoping is it starts forming much closer human connections within our local communities. I'm hoping will happen as a result, and I'm certainly looking to this myself with my own kind of future. I'm expecting to see us moving away from big, centrally managed, controlled, syllabus-governed, massive schools where kids go and they're talked at and there's a big separation between school and the rest of the real world towards actually much smaller, more autonomous units, which are kind of co-working and co-learning hubs, where actually what you'll find is that you might get a whole family going to a hub. The parents will go and work in the digital space and they might have creator spaces and, and whatever. The children will go off into like learning spaces and they might come together for lunch and they might do clubs together. You know, mother and daughter might play guitar together or whatever. I think that that notion of small kind of almost like decentralized autonomous organizations or DAOs, I think that is possibly the future in the next 20 to 30 years that we're actually going to see a movement, not across the world, but everywhere, but where possible cities and communities developing into quite small units where people are looking after themselves and they're working together and they're kind of, they almost become self-governing. Because I think the reason this may well happen is because if AI can individually kind of create the learning pathway for a student, there's no need to have these big organizational structures anymore. The reason we have them is because it's come from the sort of the, the industrial model of education, which came from the fact that the cities, the only reason we have schools the way we have them is because people move from the countryside into the cities and there are too many people to teach, but like the mental system that we had prior to the industrial revolution was just impossible. So we created a system of education, which matched the world that we were moving in. We don't have to do that anymore. 
we're actually beginning to see decentralization happening now. I mean, if you look at what happened in crypto and blockchain over the last few years, we're already seeing this idea of decentralization. And I think we're going to apply that notion of decentralization to schools. And if we do do that, that therefore means that we can move away from big industrial schools towards much smaller schools where they're more community focused and where we have that blurring of community and work and social and education. And it becomes a much more holistic experience. The final thing, definitely, definitely, definitely moving away from a lesson of English followed by a lesson of history, followed by a lesson of math towards immersive real world project-based learning, which can't come soon enough genuinely think this really will open up so much. I'm really excited. I think kids in the next kind of 10 to 15 years, I'm hoping they're going to have a very different experience than kids over the last sort of 20 to 30 or 200 years, actually. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.